and welcome to season three of the Treasures from Malta podcast, a podcast series produced by Fondazione Patrimonio Malti. I am Francesca Balzan, an artist and art historian who goes back a long way with Patrimonio. In this podcast, I meet some of Malta's living treasures. In seasons one and two, we had conversations with fascinating people, with artists, historians and art collectors with some Malta connection. And in season three, we will continue to meet more. We hope you enjoy it. My guest today has had a remarkable career. From art studies in Malta, he went on to obtain further art degrees in London, where he worked his way up to become one of the finest scenic artists, producing incredible sets that are beautiful works of sculpture for the biggest names in the industry. From Paris to New York, if you spot a beautiful shop window, say at Louis Vuitton or Dior, it is likely to have been produced by Scenic Sets, his busy London workshop, which he founded as work increased in the 1980s and now employs family and other professionals to produce remarkable window displays, backdrops and props for films and adverts for the most recognizable international brands. Carmel Said, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for the amazing introduction, uh, Francesca. I really appreciate that. Carmel, where are you speaking to us from today? Um, at the moment, I'm in my London workshop, which is based in Wembley. It's a very kind of not a, a large workshop, you know, but it's um, it's good enough for what we do. Occasionally, we have to hire larger premises, you know, depending on what project is, um, what space it requires, you know. Great. So we look forward to hearing some sounds of, of a busy workshop in the background. Yeah, you may, you may hear the occasional screwdriver or saw or something, <laughs> people chattering about, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing better than a busy workshop. Carmel, let me take you back to the beginning. You were brought up in Lua in Malta and you started to follow in your father Anthony's footsteps until his life was cut short by a terrible car accident when you were just 14 years old. Nonetheless, it seems that his influence continued to sustain you throughout your creative career. Now tell us a bit, who was your father and what did he do? Yes, um, he was actually an instructor at the Marsa School where they taught construction, I think. I was still quite young then, but he also had such a varied talent. He sculpted things like the cobbles and on the palace balconies. He also designed like a, a house, a villa, which is in Weirdazuria. Mm-hmm. It's a colorful one, and uh, I seem to remember going there, you know, uh, really enjoying the space. Mm-hmm. It had this beautiful um, spiral staircase uh, and was not supported by anything, you know. It felt like you're gliding up these stairs. Uh, he even designed the furniture there. He also did the, you know, the Mosta Dome when it it was the bomb went through the dome mm-hmm. he sculpted all the rosettes there just dangling on a very kind of precarious box there so he actually reconstructed them yeah he well i think they they put the the stones there and then he carved he carved the rosettes and and mm-hmm. situ um he also did like carnival floats he was very interested in theater and when the television Malta um, opened there, he did lots of um, sets for for programs. In fact, the the day before he he had that uh, terrible car accident, he took me there and he gave me a brush. You know, he said, "Here, you see that? You know, just those corners, make them look like they're old." And you know, and I was feeling so kind of amazed at that kind of young age. When there was something that I felt very uh, kind of amazed when when I were watching 
uh, the guys, they were doing some dance routine after we had finished painting. And Will, he was sitting right opposite, you know, the, where they were dancing. And our eyes just met. They were like laser beams, you know, and uh, we smiled at each other. And, and again, that feeling just really, I felt so strong. and uh, And it was so above the usual sort of down-to-earth uh, occurrences, you know, that it happened about three times, this, mm -hmm. where they locked, and then I felt, like, invincible. <laughs> mm -hmm. it's, <laughs> it's an incredible connection you had, and although exactly, yeah. he passed away when you were very young, um, you had already been observing what he was doing, and you exactly, would, yeah. would take on all of these roles that he was so accomplished in sculpting carving design building monumental sets backdrops for tv all of this would eventually feature in your future career except that of course you had so much more time to develop this and over the last five decades you have yeah. turned it into a massive international <laughs> success i remember because i used to sort of also imitate things, you know, I used to make my my toys, you know, mm -hmm. I used to make them and, and you always sort of used to observe these things that I made. And one day he said, you know, one day I'm going to be 80 years old. <clears throat> I'll be sitting behind you saying, well done, my son. I think psychologically, I, I feel like I've been trying to justify that and, and show that I've done it. <laughs> Indeed, you continued his work. Carmel, yeah. to go back to your career, as uh -huh. a young man, you enrolled at the Malta School of Art and you studied under Carmen Umanjon, who by all accounts was uh -huh. an inspirational teacher and a great artist in his own right, mm -hmm. as we've seen from recent exhibitions. You also were an assistant to the famed artist and decorator, Envin Cremona. That's right, yeah. You then obtained a scholarship to study abroad to read for a bachelor's degree in art because that was not available in Malta at the time. And you wished to pursue your studies further, but you were refused an extension of the scholarship despite being accepted at one of the greatest art schools worldwide, the Royal College of Art. Mm -hmm. Tell me what happened after that. Yes, um one thing that uh, Carmen and John, sort of, I felt so, uh, I liked his humble sort of approach. And there was a certain strength in his way of, you know, he wasn't sort of like um, a showy kind of guy. He did what he did with true feeling. And that kind of was translated onto, you know, I, I kind of followed um, that kind of character. Um, I was awarded a scholarship from Malta School of Art and I went, uh, came over to London Croydon College of Art, which at the time was like a vocational course. I was there in 1970 and uh, I was, I was received a letter saying that it's not recognized as a teaching diploma. So I had already spent two years of my four-year uh, course. And um, so I changed and I, I was accepted at Loughborough College of Art. But it, mean, it meant that I had to start my uh, course, uh, my three-year course. It was a three-year course. So I had already spent two years, which left me with one year without a grant. And that's where my kind of journey of uh, <laughs> uh, kind of difficulty started, you know, but I had to find a way. So I was asked from the education department here to, to go back to um, Croydon, but then I thought, what's the point? You know, it's not recognized as a teaching diploma. So I stayed there and I thought, right, I'm going to find a way of uh, saving that one year's money. And I did by sort of working in a chip shop, living in a chip shop. And, you know, it was kind of very hard. But 
I did it. Then, after I've done that course, I was told that Royal College was uh, quite a good college and uh, the best, one of the best in the world. You know, so I thought, right, that's where I'm going to go. <laughs> and, and I applied there and uh, I got accepted. But I knew that if I get accepted there, I would have one year out um, before I start the course. So I thought, in that year, I should apply to do a teacher's training course in Malta, which is what I did. You, I tried to kind of get a grant to see me through my uh, rural college. And so I started uh, going to the director of education to see if they can extend, you know, give me a grant. Uh, and uh, it was very difficult. Um, I went to the Minister of Education and you know, said, well, look, you've uh, been given a grant. You want another one? I said, well, <laughs> I said, I'm just showing that the money that you gave me, I used them wisely and here I am. And you know, he didn't know anything about the Royal College of Art. And there was this incident where uh, my sister, one of my sister did hair. She was a hairdresser. A hairdresser. And uh, and she was doing this hair, this um, English lady, very sort of really nice, educated, and she was talking to her and she said, "Oh, my brother's got into this college in London." She said, "Oh, which college was that?" "Draw College, I think it's called." You know, she said, "Oh, really? Draw College?" And this lady um, said to her. One minute, I'll, uh, later on, I'll, uh, I'll come up with something, you know. And she happened to be Victor Passmore's wife, Wendy. Wendy Passmore, <laughs> who is an artist in her own right. Exactly, yeah. So she, she knew, you know, what. And that same afternoon, she came back with a letter from Victor saying, to whom it may concern, this college is, you know, and... Uh, a little bit of a blurb signed Victor Pasmo. So I thought, right, I'm going to go with this letter to the Minister of Education again. And um, I went there and I said, well, look, I've got this letter. And he just brushed it aside. And I was so kind of <laughs> disappointed. I said, well, look, I said, if you don't want to read the letter, just read the signature. It's not too much. And he still brushed it aside. <laughs> and I was, I thought, no, I can't take this. <laughs> and I just walked away. And I had to find a way of, I didn't want to lose this opportunity. You know, and at that time, you needed to get a visa to be able to come back to London. So unless you, you had something to show that you, you had money there or enough to see you through. My, I decided to borrow some money and uh, and put it in a bank in London. But <laughs> it gave me the visa. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. To contextualize, Victor Passmore is considered to be the greatest post-war abstract artist in exactly. England. So definitely in the art world, his name meant a lot. Naturally, yeah. on the local level, perhaps not so much. Exactly. So it, it was an incredible recommendation to have. Yeah. But Carmel, moving on. Um, so you had to actually self-fund your way through college, through the Royal College of Art. But it seems that, in a way, doing this favoured you because it opened up a new avenue, which eventually you would take up. And kind of your future career found you there. You were already painting scenery and backdrops while mm -hmm. trying to self-fund your studies there. Tell me about how you started as a scenic artist. I had a friend of mine who was already working in uh, we're at the same college, the previous college together. I managed to get into our college. He didn't. So he got a job working with a scenery firm. And I had said to him, look, I need to earn some money, <laughs> you know, <laughs> weekends, evenings, whenever, you know, I just come. And he managed to sort of 
say, you know, come here. And I used to go there and watch what they're doing and uh, say, yeah, I can do that. <laughs> and uh, I started so sort of doing that every, you know, weekends, whenever there was time. There was the occasional time when I took a day during the week, you know, because they said, oh, you, you can come, you know, tomorrow. Or So that kind of gave me like a stepping stone to just carry on going, doing what I really wanted to do. But uh, what happened was eventually, after uh, I finished college, I thought I'll carry on doing, you know, two days a week working on scenery and the rest I'll do my own work, which is what I did. And uh, I carried on, but then the scenic work, was more demand, you know, saying, can you please come next day? So from two days, it turned into three, four, five, and then it was all week, you know. So my personal work tend to kind of tended to diminish and the scenery work just expanded until after about two years, I, I decided to leave the company, you know, and the, uh, not knowing what I'm going to do, I started <laughs> to even make toys. I, I designed all these little toys, wooden toys, you know, very, and they looked quite nice, actually. I must try and repeat that. In fact, yeah, I wanted to ask you, what sort of work were you doing with this company? Was it backdrops for commercials? or It was uh, mainly backdrops, but also um, sculptural work, you know. Mm-hmm. So they, they used to get these massive polystyrene blocks and carve a figure or, you know, so I had a go at that. I had a very good sense of three dimensions as well. So I I always liked the challenge, you know, and I'd say, oh, yeah, I can do that. Let me, you know, how do you cut that? What do you use? You know, and I'll, I'll just use them. It was a good training ground. So, and then what happened after you left, after two years? It was, yeah, then I left and, and somebody knew that I left uh, called me to go and paint a backdrop, you know, and I, which is what I did, and and it was for photography. It was like a, a nice guy. Their agent, the photographer's agent, saw this and said, Carmel, I'll be your agent, you know, and I'll give you whatever, you know, it gave me like quite a large sum of money from, you know, <laughs> And I said, oh, yeah, that will do, you know. (laughs) So then that's where the scenery thing just opened up and really took over completely, you know, because then I was doing, I don't know how many jobs. He had about six photographers. Some of them were still alive, portraits or car photographers, and uh, that's where we then used to travel all over the place, you know. Again, after I don't know how many years, I decided to leave, partly because there were other photographers, good photographers, who wanted to wanted to use my skills, and I couldn't because the agent had said, look, we're in this kind of group. And so I said, look, I've got to go. And again, uh, it's like taking a gamble, you know, from, you know, being so nicely rewarded. Mm-hmm. But to me, that wasn't the main issue, you know. <laughs> to me, I just wanted to just keep expanding and, you know, I never thought about the money. The money just came and I was glad that it was behind me, you know, it wasn't, I didn't keep it in front of me, it's just something that followed, and it's like I was a kid still playing, and, you know, and I still, it's what I'm still doing now. (laughs) But this brought you your creative freedom in a way, and you could choose the jobs that you would accept. Exactly, yeah. And you could expand further because it wasn't only photography backdrops that you were then able to do. You were able to do other things. And in fact, let's talk about your company because you did set it up in the 80s and it's yeah. been working hard and expanding its portfolio ever since. Now, yeah. you've been creating the most incredible sculptural and creative shop windows for high-level clients like Louis Vuitton and Dior. 
as mm. well as props and sets for adverts and campaigns of Siemens, Tesco, Pepsi, and so many more um, through your company, through Senex Sets. Mm-hmm. Now, there's an impressive list full of visuals and videos on the Senex Sets website. Um, I was just going through it yet again this morning and once again being freshly impressed at what, what an enormous portfolio you have and, you know, the versatility is incredible. Uh-huh. Um, so when was your lucky break and your introduction into this luxury market? It was, um, again, I knew uh, a designer. Well, he actually used to work for me, you know, and um, he eventually applied to become a designer at Louis Vuitton. And one day they needed something, and he said, I know the right person. And uh, he said, can you do this? You know, I said, yeah. They wanted, I, I think it was like a sculpture of an elephant mm-hmm. with a background. And it was uh, uh, painted in these kind of diamond patterns. Mm-hmm. And so... I sculpted the elephant, and I painted it with these uh, diamond patterns. But at the back, they wanted a like a curtain painted. So basically, I was I was uh, doing the two dimensions to look like three dimensions, mm-hmm. you know, with the folds and mm-hmm. the two dimensions. Try to make them look. Mm-hmm. Three playing, playing with illusion exactly and then I placed the elephant in front of the curtain and they kind of blended there was this camouflage sort of feel that looked quite interesting and when they saw it they kind of uh, really liked it and uh, and that was then they kept on pushing the envelope you know saying oh can you do this <laughs> just things were growing and growing and uh, there were many kind of projects that kind of presented so many um, challenges, uh, not just visual, but then you have to think of the structure and uh, how to make something stay there. And, and you had to kind of have a, a sense of uh, what materials do. In fact, let, let's talk about your creative process. I mean, take the Louis Vuitton windows that you've reinvented so many times in London, mm-hmm. Paris, and elsewhere, practically all over the world. And these contain stunning displays, which for me are nothing short of sculpture and sculpture on a monumental scale mm-hmm. and in polychromy and in various colors. Now, what level of detail are you given in a brief? And are you given creative freedom? Are you just given an idea and then you have to get back with the actual sort of how you're seeing the design being created? Yeah, I mean, they have a very good idea of what they want. Many times they give you a brief that's quite kind of almost resolved. Again, I look at things and then I say, hmm, it might be a good idea here if you even... I used to suggest even lighting, you know, because lighting, you've got such an important, um, it's like a theater set, you know, mm-hmm. your lighting creates a mood. Most shop windows, you see like these lights blasting mm-hmm. and without any kind of, uh, they're more want to so, show the product and it's what it's about, mm-hmm. product. But again, the background has to kind of, enhance that and you know not kind of scream at you but absolutely light is one of your media exactly yeah yeah can you give me an example of of a work you've done where you run us through from a client's initial brief all the way to the completion and installation Mm. of it one that comes to mind right now was uh, uh, they had these kind of floating islands uh, magical sort of floating island. It's all kinds of things on them, you know, crystals and bushes. And so um, we created these. And the, the trick is how to make them look like they are floating there, you know, in, in the middle of the window. Um, Let me take you back one, Carmel. This is for Louis Vuitton. Yeah, this was for, for Louis Vuitton um, project. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so basically, um, I had to find a way of supporting these islands. Mm-hmm. 
with all these um, elements on them that had to look sort of like quite magical. Um, and then create a background for them that was sort of coming down and then onto the floor. So you get a curve. So, you know, it looks like way up there somewhere. Mm. But the trick, you know, was how to make that curve. So I used, if you use canvas, you know, I know that with moisture, the canvas moves, especially if you've got two planes, you know, mm -hmm. from vertical to horizontal. Um, so then I I got canvas that was coated with something, and even that didn't work. You get folds and, you know, to get it pristine. And then I decided I'll use lino, you know, quite a thick material, and you can drape it and... Uh, so we used lino and it worked perfectly, you know. So that was kind of a decision to to make that, you know, to create that kind of feel. Also, is how to make the um, the islands support, mm -hmm. you know, made sort of metal support underneath coming through through the lino and. But then again, it's like. If the the window the lights from the windows will create a shadow on the background, so that I had to find a way of eliminating that. So, which is behind the uh, islands, we made like lights, all these amazing lights that gave a glow, and that kind of separated the islands from the background. And made them feel like there's they are floating there, you know. And it's like little ideas like this that when you see it, you think, "Oh, yeah, that's easy." But it's to come up with with the solution. That so, do you mock all this up in your studio? Yeah, exactly. In fact, we do build a one-to-one -one, um, model of the space of the window, you know. And, you know, you have to be so precise. Mm -hmm. You're given architect's drawings of the sizes of the windows. Uh, I found that you actually have to go there and do your own measurements because the architect's drawings from the real vary quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And we have to work to within, like, millimeters, you know, <laughs> to make yeah. everything fit and... Look. So you actually mock up everything in studio. You create the works. You disassemble them, but then exactly. you need to you need to reassemble them on site. Now that's, that's all. Yeah. That's all well and good if you're working for a London um, mm -hmm. shop window. But what happens if you're working for a shop window in Hong Kong or Paris? You can't keep bouncing back and forth to measure and try out things. No, exactly. Those those things we um, we send there, and they have their own installation team. Mm -hmm. You know where we have to then uh, give them a manual mm -hmm. of how everything goes, how it fits, what goes in first. Do you go at all? Do you visit at all for the final touches? No, we we we've traveled to the furthest was America. You know, um, uh, we haven't been to the Far East, but they give us good good measurements, and we say to them that these are all these windows are worked according to your measurements. You know, so <laughs> yes. But we, we've spoken about shop windows, and that is a gr a big part of your practice as a scenic artist. However, you've done far more than that. What sort of works do you do beyond shop windows? We have done film work um, where we had to, like one that comes to my head now is um, uh, one of Ridley Scott's uh, movies, All the Money in the World, where we had to make a, a an architect's uh, model you know, to be revealed as the guys were talking about this, their future plans. So a piece of sculpture, essentially. Exactly. But, you know, they're so precise on what they want, you know. And the pressure is quite high there, you know. Uh, we also sort of produced uh, paintings, like Tudor-style paintings. Um, I can't mm -hmm. remember what film it was. You know... 
thing is that so many things that we do, well, that I do, I, I cannot remember what, what they are for, you know. <laughs> So not only have you done backdrops for photography, backdrops for commercials, which are shot, obviously, against them and everything, but also props for films, including, I mean, not just sculpture or replicating works of art, but actual props Mm -hmm. that are, for example, extensions of a hand. That's right. Well, like, for example, once we had to um, find a way of, they said, oh, we've got this um, commercial work, we we need a dog that plays the guitar <laughs> okay and and a cat that plays the harmonica <laughs> and so we're, we're not to, training actual dogs and cats <laughs> so basically we had to make like a dog's paw that can move <laughs> so somebody wears it and can move precisely you know so we had to take a mold of the hand mm-hmm. of the person who's going to wear it and make a cast of that and then build a pool around it (laughs) around it and then take a mold of that and then cover it with fur and all lots of details that are are involved in doing these kind of things and we had to do the same thing for the cat you know and uh, they were actually playing some blues number (laughs) it was quite a funny when you look at it you think it's because it worked very well. You know, they had to teach the girl which strings to pluck at what time. <laughs> you know. So there's always these kind of things where, you know, you have to do it uh, in front of the camera kind of thing. Mm-hmm. You know, the solution has to be there rather than do it in 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 post, as they call, you know, sure. Sure. CGI stuff in other words whenever there's some sort of impossible demand from the director they say call carmel yeah exactly it's like uh, the last time i remember they said oh we're doing this kind of uh, commercial where it's winter but suddenly it turns into summer so they had these ideas of igloos and uh, the igloo has to disappear and suddenly there's a couple dancing under an umbrella in the sunshine and uh, said come we have to to do this so (laughs) i had to find a way of building an igloo that disappears in front of the camera and revealing this couple dancing and i found a way of doing it you know and they had somebody who uh came with a computer to to do the CGI stuff because they realized that this is not going to work, you know. So, <laughs> And suddenly we did it and it kind of, I was amazed myself at how well it worked, you know. I thought they will have to do some sort of touches with the computer, but eventually they decided that they didn't need to do anything Amazing. because... I found, you know, I made all these blocks, tied them with string, and then I said, okay, let's pull the things away, and they disappeared, and suddenly there was an umbrella with the guys dancing. <laughs> A very low-tech solution, but that Exactly. The, the simplest solution, mm-hmm. very low-tech, exactly like what we say. You don't need to, do, to have a very complicated um, system, you know, yeah. so... It's the experience of what materials exactly. to use and how to use them, when to use them. Exactly. So, you know, you have to have a very good knowledge of what materials do. Mm-hmm. In fact, I mean, your versatility is incredible because you've worked in material from polystyrene to wood to clay. You've yeah. also worked with 3D renderings. But are you able to handle all these materials or is your team divided into specializations nowadays? Well, w- what we do is that many times, um, like, for example, we had to do uh, work in collaboration with, uh, for a Louis Vuitton project with the Chapman brothers. Mm. And uh, they wanted these sculptures uh, made, you know, animals that were fantastical animals 
we decided to make them by hand, you know. So basically, I can do, I can sculpt, I can, you know, model in clay. But again, because it, it's such a big project, I had to find the best uh, sculptors. Mm-hmm. You know, sculptors that are used on major films. Mm-hmm. I create a system where this is how we're going to do it. And um, it was very nice way of doing it sure. but it's very expensive of know. course it's a collaboration but so you bring in specific uh, skills exactly. when when necessary i can imagine that you're also very constrained with time uh, what's the usual project time scale you're given it varies between sort of like two weeks five weeks mm. you know but not more than that you know so so you have to kind of really find a way of uh, really efficient way of uh-huh. operating you know you can't sort of sit down and <laughs> so you're not even given advance warning for example a year ahead telling you that you'll have two weeks to not you know, really aside time because you're going to be given a brief and then you need to execute it within two weeks you're not told this no, in advance <laughs> not really i mean we have stressed you know that we can be lot more efficient you know even financially it will cost them a lot less if we at least know a little bit in advance of what their plans are we can even help with design work you know and uh, you know we have a very good team here where you know we can sort of like help in that direction and now they seem to be listening to that you know, <laughs> because they realize that it can save money you know if if we have a little bit of prior planning you know so yeah that that kind of uh, helps a lot Carmen let's take a break and then we'll come back to find out more back don't forget to go to our podcast page on www.patrimonio.org to see pictures and links to what we've discussed in each podcast episode caramel what was the most complex commission you've worked on to date well again louis vuitton were um launching the new uh, store in new bond street they had a major major um refurbishment and to launch their new store they decided to have this like a starburst on the facade of their new building spent must have spent millions on doing this um and uh, the designers you know Faye McLeod and uh, Ansel Thompson came to me and they said come out we you have to do this we've got six weeks when since the beginning of talking about it and this was uh quite a involved thing you've got the people the construction guys there i've got needed a massive workshop you know so i had within this time i had to sort of solve all, all these problems and here we've got a very good team you know who can so i say let's find a workshop you know and there's alexander my son uh craig my nephew and mercedes my niece and i used to have my other <laughs> my other uh nephew dion who is now he was based in malta um and they're all kind of pull their weight and to get this thing going you know it's uh, so basically we had to i i needed a team of um guys working on computer to disseminate the whole job and i say look this how because some of the elements were at least a hundred feet long you know so when you consider they were like these shoot 
and uh, how they're going to overlap and they all had to end up in a point you know right so to line up all these um arrows if you like you know um it's uh, it was quite a a feat to um and also we had to find a way of painting them but they you know was discussing things with Faye and, and Hansel um that they wanted something a bit kind of loose you know not not precise you know nothing really they wanted a bit of kind of liveliness to it so we decided on the colors that we used and how to apply them and they said you know like brush strokes but if you imagine doing a brush stroke about a hundred feet long make it look like a brush stroke <laughs> and uh, i trying so many different ways of do, trying to to get this effect you know that uh, they came to the workshop and uh, there was the client everyone there and they said Carmen can you show us how, how you're gonna do it and the pressure at that point <laughs> I thought how so I might make got a tray full of paint and I I made this like um, foam uh, thing that I held on, on my, and I cut it into sort of like, made it a lot of texture, dipped it into this uh, tray full of paint. And I went and had to walk <laughs> backwards, holding this thing. Quite a performance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it actually worked very well. And they were saying, "Oh wow, that's good." And I, <laughs> I thought, "I'm glad it worked," you know. But I knew that there would it there would be the desired effect. Mm -hmm. So basically, um, from that, you get a team of uh, painters. You know, this is how we're going to do it, and they get on with it. And uh, then it's how to attach it with the to the building. You know, there was scaffolding, mm -hmm. and there were these scaffolders. You know, these guys who kind of really, you know, come along. Oh yeah, yeah. No, we don't have to. And then one guy said, "Oh, what if it's raining?" I said, "Well, wear raincoat." You know, it's like <laughs> it's simple. I said, "Oh, yeah, it's very difficult." I said, "I know it's difficult." You know, and I tried to explain to them how to get all these things come to one point yeah. you know like to all marry so i i had to explain to them you just need to get one on one side because it was on a corner of the building wrapped around that corner yeah yeah and uh, eventually they called me and they said carmo um we've uh, made a you know they made a mistake <laughs> i said they didn't allow for the thickness of the material when they came to do the other side. So the point didn't match. I said, and they said, maybe you can put like a, a cap in, in the middle so that you don't see. That they don't align. <laughs> I said, the point of this project is the point. Where it touches <laughs> precisely. Where it all comes to one single point you can't hide that so i said look i've got to come there so i went there got a couple of guys with me and started taking all these massive shapes out and realigning them and i got them to a fine point you know and whether it was raining cold or whatever and so there it's kind of um you know you have to kind of really push to to get yeah. you know the desired effect and obviously you've you know, got a vision so you'll you won't stop at anything to make sure that it is executed as you want it but um all this precision 
all sometimes they have to be outdoors as you've just explained and therefore they have to withstand the vagaries of of nature of the weather and yet they come down after a while they're all ephemeral uh, they can last what a few weeks a season but and then you dismantle them is this a bit painful for you in the sense that they're ephemeral you've created them you've put in so much work but they're going to be destroyed ultimately and do do you reutilize elements from them how do you feel about it all? Uh, we actually there was a time when we said you know we can it might it might be a good idea even to save the planet you know so much waste the waste to me was always kind of troubled you and find yeah it's a challenge even now you know in fact now we are trying to work at using eco-friendly materials and mm-hmm. you know but that's another kind of story uh, but in terms of them there were a couple of times where I suggested let's reuse this cut it and paint it in a different way and it worked you know but you can't do that with most projects you know like yeah. um you know they've they've used collaborated with different artists so you can't sort of reuse something that's mm-hmm. specific yeah. to one one project you know it's um, and uh, you you get used to stuff being just you know thrown away into in fact many times we have to show them uh evidence that something has been destroyed yes otherwise they think that you've resold it and yeah 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 yeah. i mean it's it's like all these animals that we did with the chapman brothers they had to be destroyed yes because there there is a secondary market for them otherwise yeah 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 they had sort of contracts with them that were quite strict so what about documenting do you document everything religiously because it's such a pity that these these wonderful sculptural installations are eventually destroyed yeah i mean nowadays uh, we've got such good ways of kind of documenting mm-hmm. things that we try to sort of uh, photograph mm-hmm. and video and generally now uh, we try to sort of keep a copy of how we did something mm-hmm. uh, and uh, a good finished sort of uh, uh, photographs you know that mm-hmm. will show very good good explanation of what what we did yes. and how it was. in fact even on your site there are some explanations about certain projects some behind the scenes shots and all that exactly yeah um i obviously for you it's extremely useful because it's a work reference and something that you can go back to 20 years ago how did we solve exactly. that problem can we re- redo this but I'm thinking from a conservation point of view, the conservation of the memory, if you like. I'm thinking of a little Carmel side museum of all this yeah. wonderful stuff that you've done. <laughs> and this is what I'm, I'm asking you. Are you documenting for posterity? Will you eventually put together an archive of all these works? I, I never thought of that, to oh, be well, quite you honest. you should. <laughs> yeah, I think it's something that, you know, I, it will be very interesting to... Um, to have something, you know, like, uh, because a lot of the times, you know, we're, we are like the invisible artists. Yes, you know. yes. There isn't your name yeah, proudly displayed in a self-conscious way, like you would have an artist's work with a caption in a museum. Yeah, yeah. although um, Louis Vuitton in particular, they have a museum, a Louis Vuitton museum, mm-hmm. and... Uh, there are quite a few things that we did that they kind of um, uh, hold on to. I see, and they actually attribute to you. They they put your name on the captions. I I'm not quite sure on that, mm. but um, at least I will they survive. Add. At least they that's something you know, uh, something that's quite interesting to find out. Because yeah. um, I mean, there were times once I had to paint like the these aurora borealis Mm -hmm. but not kind of photographic but the feeling of them you know with these amazing colors that and uh, they were quite large 
And to me, I could see those in a museum when I finished them. And the designer was so impressed, you know, that she wanted to keep them. And I, in fact, we had to roll them up and... Uh, I don't know where they are, but I'm I'm sure they kept them somewhere. Because mm. um, they had, you know, Mark Rothko's of paintings. Yes. There was there was something about them that gave you a feeling. Yes. Uh, if they were sort of my personal work, I thought I'd be happy with those. You know, to kind of show those. You, you mark know. them in any way to to show that you've done them yourself. Do you sign them? Not really. Anymore? No. At least a, a stamp of Senex sets on the back? Not really, no. Um, okay. We have sort of labels, you know, mm-hmm. that we can, we stick sometimes, even like uh, tape that we use has got Senex sets, Senex sets on it. But, you know, they get thrown away, you know, so yeah. <laughs> it's... I, I think the best way to document all this is to actually have your own photographic de- documentation of these works, which will one day move off into perhaps people's private collections. But if you upload all this data on your website, at least you've claimed authorship of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are some projects where we're not allowed to yes, we, um, put on, you know, like the Jeff Koons thing and the Chapman Brothers and, you know, all these projects that had, so these uh, individuals who are sort of artists in their own right, Mm -hmm. we we couldn't sort of show those in our website. Absolutely. We've touched upon the fine arts. You've mentioned some artists and you've supported them with your work. But you train, you are an artist in your own right. You trained first and foremost as an artist. And I've been following your non-commercial artwork mm-hmm. on social media. And this seems rooted in the history of art. But it's highly original with layers of meaning and symbols that refer to contemporary events, troubling contemporary events. Mm-hmm. And my assessment of your work is that you kind of create absurd, impossible situations, almost in the spirit of Hieronymus Bosch. Now, what mm. is your art, your personal art about, and where are yeah. you heading with it? Uh, well, when I initially started in art at our college, you know, I was very interested in uh, certain feelings that um, were not. It, it, it's like tapping into a, a level of um, a feeling that I didn't want to make, uh, represent something or illustrate something. Um, Like, for example, I used to go to the um, prehistoric temples in Malta, Mm -hmm. and I found something quite impressive there, you know, feeling that you get. And I didn't want to paint the temples. I was doing sort of like paintings that were sort of abstract paintings with mm-hmm. dark thing with a bit of light coming through or and that's what I was very interested in, you know, initially. And then there was another time when uh, there were these impressive moments like uh, went to the hypogeum Mm-hmm. And put my head inside this the oracle thing where you hum and oracle this hole, yeah. reverberates, mm-hmm. and that to me was such a magical moment. And these are kind of things that I was trying to convey in my work. Mm-hmm. Um, another thing, I mean, these are very strange occurrences where, as a Kid, you know, I was very young. We were going to the um, prehistoric temples, and there was a rock. And I don't know why, but I I pressed my ear against it mm-hmm. and got a stone and hit it. And suddenly there was this ringing noise. I thought it left me with this kind of magical something. I thought a rock was like a thud dead but this had this ring to it 
and that left an impression on me. It's all these things that I was trying to kind of capture and but to be able to explain express all this you have to be in a certain uh sense of you have to be in the zone to be able exactly to, to, to actually be able to express it yeah in drawing in writing in whatever your, yeah, yeah. your medium is so what i found was that um as i was going along in my studies with all these problems of having to finance myself, I was brought down to earth. I couldn't tap into these mm-hmm. higher feelings. <laughs> yeah. So from painting, um, abstract paintings, then I started going, doing figurative work, you know, that where kind of, I used to look at the, uh, in Malta, you know, where they have a festa and, mm-hmm. you know, celebrations, fireworks and, I wanted to kind of convey that sense of, it was to me a bit of a madness thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not something that I really um, aspire to. There was this contradiction where you've got the saint and they're swearing away, carrying the saint, mm-hmm. drinking. It was an excuse to get a, uh, to get drunk, basically. Fireworks, shouting and Mm-hmm. And all this kind of contradictions, you know, mm-hmm. with politics, religion, mm-hmm. all this thing going on. So basically, I was trying to find a way of painting these kind of things that it's not to make a pretty picture, basically, but to, to show a sense of madness that this is where we are. Look at it, you know. And then in the recent past you know there was that terrible uh, assassination of Daphne Caruana Galizia which really hit me so hard it felt to me like it was Daphne was um, a family and what really even struck me hard was that um, the comments that you get there were certain comments, even now, from that moment on, it was like, I felt like I have to do something. And, and I got sketchbooks and a pencil, you know, just basic paper, pencil. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what I was going to be drawing. I just had to, I, I was like being forced. And I started drawing and all these so very strange images <laughs> started coming out. It's not something that I was consciously, um, you know, I didn't say, oh, I want to draw a man with, you know, doing this or doing that. Mm-hmm. It's just what's happening. And Yes, these drawings and the related sculpture really need to be seen. And um, we'll link up listeners to your Instagram account. And the handle is Carmel Side Official. Okay. Carmel, do you still retain contacts with Malta at all? Um, yeah, I, well, the only contact I, I do is, is basically come over there just for a whole day to relax and wind. Um, not that I'm a fan of fireworks and, uh, you know, the mayhem that goes on. <laughs> during... Oh, I got it. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I do like to keep a uh, sort of a contact there simply because it's my home. And I w- I'd like to be able to contribute something, you know, how, I don't know yet. And But I feel very strongly that that time will come. I hope it will be with a big bang. On that very hopeful note, I'd like to thank you so much for your time and for, you know, the preliminary meetings we had and the discussions and for contributing so greatly to enhancing streets of the world with your beautiful shop windows i do wish you best of luck in documenting all these wonderful projects that you have done and will continue to do thank you very much francesca i feel so privileged you know to be on one of your podcasts and uh, it's wonderful Um, i feel that you've given me a voice um, to share 
you for listening to this podcast. There are pictures and links to all we've discussed on the Fondazione Patrimonio Malti website under the podcast section. That's www.patrimonio.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate it on your podcast player as this will help others find it faster. And please do remember to tell a friend about it. Until next episode, goodbye.